Una with the British Blacklist and today I'm joined by Moses McKenzie whose debut novel An Olive Grove and Ends has just been published. Um, I'm sure you've had a like, very busy few weeks and days but how are you doing Moses? Welcome. Yeah thank you for having me. Yeah I'm doing good man. I'm, I'm the love and bless I can't, I can't complain. Nice. Well uh, congratulations anyway. Um, I'm sure the book's release was like highly anticipated for you and it was kind of weighing heavy so congrats what have you done to like celebrate for yourself or at least like reflect on everything that's kind of been going on recently i'm not very good at celebrating myself so i haven't really done anything out of the norm do you know what i'm saying i've just mm -hmm. continued as always but um I, I bought a piece of clothing I, I probably bought it it was too expensive but i bought it so maybe that's the way i've done it do you know what i'm saying yeah yeah no fair enough just to mark the moment i guess and like, yeah 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 it's, it's kind of hard it really is it really is an excuse to buy it but yeah. So An Olive Grove and Ends is like an outstanding piece of work. I've just finished um, reading it and I think oh, that you. it's like beautiful and perceptive and heavy, all in equal measure. And um, before we get like properly talking about the novel itself, I kind of wanted to know where the idea came from. I kind of started to think about it in the summer of 2019. I wrote three manuscripts before I wrote An Olive Grove and Ends and I finished the third one probably in the summer, of the start of the summer of 2019. So I started to think about what I want to talk about next. So um, I decided to write something like close to home in terms of the setting, like it literally is home. And then I was writing for my little cousin as well, specifically for him, that, as in the book was for him, written for him. So that, that was kind of the inspiration. In terms of how long I had to think about it, it wasn't, I kind of, with this novel, every novel I've written, I've written differently. So with this one, I kind of just started writing without much planning. And once I had about 50,000 words, or even actually it was probably more than that, probably closer to 60, that's when I started to structure it more so and I'd go back and I'd make changes. But I, I wrote, so the whole, the whole first draft from the point of conceptualization to a finished first draft and submission was, was three months. That's kind of a quick process. And I guess, as you said, it's like of home and thinking of home. So I guess lots of it came as natural as possible. I guess like, because this is your first published work um, and you said that you are writing some other stuff now as well. What's your relationship been like with literature? Have you always been interested in writing or is that something you've always like grown up doing or thinking about or writing bits and bobs as time's gone on or? When I was a small child, I read a lot. I was read too when I was young. And then I read all throughout primary school, I read a lot. And then probably up until about year, probably up about year nine, I just probably stopped reading in like year nine. And then in year 12, I started reading nonfiction. And, and then since that's all I, even to now, unless I'm reading for like a specific, unless I'm reading fiction for a specific reason, as in to like, if I'm like studying magical realism, or I'm studying realism, or da -da -da, then I don't really read fiction for enjoyment. And I haven't read fiction for enjoyment since about year nine. But I read nonfiction a lot. And in terms, to, in terms of writing, I started writing prose in, in 2017. That's the first time I started. And that's when I wrote my first novel, which was Dead. But that's when I wrote it, then finished the manuscript. And then, then I wrote Free. Then I wrote An Olive Grove and Ends. Okay, whoa. So like not really reading any fiction, more kind of focusing on nonfiction. I can yeah. kind of sense that from the novel slightly. And I guess would some of that nonfiction be quite based in religion and morality and things like that, which are quite heavy themes in the novel, or quite themes that are quite prevalent um, make you think. Yeah, so um, I've got like a, my pile of my reading list right next to me. It's a lot of like African history, 
pre-colonial yeah. African history. It's a lot of um, religious books, religious on like uh, books on like specific parts of Islam or specific parts of Christianity. Like the book next to me now is 101 Myths of the Bible, and then I've got a lot of books on Sufism. And then I read a lot of like James Baldwin's essays, Fanon as well, like sociological books, like Black Thinkers books. That's where my ideas come from. You know what I'm saying? Uh, with fiction, I, I kind of think, even with film as well, and I'm careful with what I let myself be influenced by. So I'm kind of picky by the things that I consume in fiction. Is that because it feels close to your own craft? Or do you think it's just because of the types of fiction that we're kind of exposed to or the kinds of fiction and like media and whether that's like film or novel that we often consume more? No, I think it's, I think it's quite close. It's, mm. it's my craft, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a competitive person. I see myself, I'm in competition with everyone who writes fiction. Not like in an unfriendly way, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I see it as like a competitive thing. I'm trying to be the best. So the people I mainly read are the people who I perceive to be the best. And then use them as like a touchstone, use them as a ruling stick, as a measuring stick. So so then, and it's like, there's so much fiction. You know what I'm saying? It's, I can't read everything. So I kind of, everyone like will have to like siphon the things that they want to read or the things they have time to read. And you have to make time to read things. So like, Contemporary fiction's kind of been, and obviously I write contemporary fiction, so it's ironic, but contemporary fiction's kind of just been pushed to one side mm. because I have all this work to read by people who have achieved what I want to achieve, you know what I'm saying? They've achieved timelessness, they've achieved eternity. That's what I want to achieve in their work, I mean. Yeah, so that's what I read. Also, kind of said before that you write for your own people, and whether that's like specifically thinking about black people, kind of black British people, or people who identify or like recognize aspects of the world that you're creating in themselves or in like their own experiences or the experience of people they know. How straightforward was that for you? Like keeping that focus in mind and kind of not leaning towards or kind of succumbing to the pressure of appealing to a wider audience, even though I think that obviously a wider audience could enjoy, absorb and kind of really find themselves in your own fiction as well. I think it was very easy because um, that was just my sole focus. Do you know what I'm saying? I haven't chosen that audience. That's just my audience. Do you know what I'm saying? They're the people whose opinions I care about. They're the people who, who I write for, they're the people that I love. So it was really simple for me. I didn't have to put much thought into it. I only really had to put thought into it when it came to the editorial process. And obviously an editor's job is to sell the book. Mm. And they want to sell the book as widely as possible. And as widely as possible in this country means to white people, to the norm, to the, what is it, like 87 or 89%. So then I, we'd have to have discussions about accessibility, and we'd have to have discussions about, like they said, oh, do you want to include a glossary? Uh, obviously, I don't. Mm. And then, do you know what I'm saying? The example I always give in regard to that is like, in sixth form, I studied Kate Chopin, The, the Awakening. Yeah. And she uses words, or even sometimes like sentences in, in French or Latin. And there's no glossary. You're just supposed to understand because Kate Chopin is writing for the higher class white people. You know what I'm saying? And the high, at the time, the white people of the high class, they spoke French and they spoke Latin, or at least they understood it, they read it. And that's, that's not a criticism at all. I think that's a good thing. She knew her audience, she wrote for her audience, her audience got it. And then, like you said, people outside of her intended audience are able to grasp it as well, because whenever anyone's writing literary fiction, you're writing about character, you're writing about humans, you're writing about emotions and feelings. So, of course, everyone can relate to that. But 
I think it's important to have an intended audience. And, so, and when you don't have that, it's kind of, I think it kind of loses quality. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely, definitely. In a way that... You can't please everyone. Yeah. And like, if you are focusing on what you want to create and who you want to create it for, then it can kind of come from that rather than trying to, I don't know, fulfill kind of impossible task of like pleasing everyone, even though everyone yeah, yeah, yeah. enjoy. Um, no, for sure. I've like also noticed that if on the topic of blackness and whiteness that it's so like dichotomous in the novel, um, especially when it comes to like culture and literally kind of geographical positioning within the city, um, wealth, mm. opportunity, all these things. And you kind of like dispel myths that Bristol is a multicultural city or a city that kind of, instead it is more of a segregated city. In like your reflection on Bristol and Eastern specifically the end of the novel, what have you reflected on since a writing or what like while you were writing kind of how have you taken a step back and like looked at your city or your like where you're from and has that changed at all or is that something that's always your relationship with it have you have you been to Bristol yeah yeah I have yeah a few times you're familiar with it yeah yeah I have some friends yeah yeah yeah. okay yeah that makes sense it's changed massively even in writing it the book's set in in 2019 but because I didn't want to write Gentrification is kind of tracked in the novel, but it's not a major theme, at least in my eyes. It was never a major theme of the novel. And I didn't want it to be, do you know what I'm saying? I didn't want to have really any white characters. But the tw- it's set in 2019. However, the Eastern that it's depicting is more like a 2011 Eastern. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where you step outside and you just see blackness. The last time I felt like that was about probably like 2012, 2013. Mm. Now, just yesterday, like, there were like breweries in Eastern and they all had like this little event on every single brewery. So there was these like groups of like middle-class white people going around with like dogs and like floral shirts. It wasn't even that hot and shorts that tour in the breweries because I've grown up here for so long. That's still alien to me. Do you know what I'm saying? So I was was looking out my window, I was walking down the road thinking like what's going on? And I feel like that every time I see groups of white people simply because that was never there. They were they were never here at all in any, like in almost any capacity, especially like middle class, upper class white people, especially like students. They were never here at all. They used to have in the brochures in Bristol University telling international students not to go to Eastern and not to go to St Paul's. Now like there's student houses here, and this is just completely new. And this is why I always find it strange when Bristol was like championed as like this diverse, multiracial. Like people call it like a melting pot. And when compared to somewhere like London, which I think is, could accurately be described as a mountain pot, simply as well, because it's almost like every single nationality in the world is represented in London. That's def- definitely not the case here. And yeah, I always find it very disingenuous because the black population, which is, I think, the only city is bigger than the Asian population, it, it, are in just two areas. And now you see that changing now as people are being pushed out forcibly and then priced out, which you could argue is forcibly as well. But but now you just see it changing, you know what I'm saying? So when I reflect on that, that was a part of the reason I wrote the novel in the first place, because I wanted to have like a time stamp, you know what I'm saying? Like a capsule, like this is, this is what it was. This is what I loved. And now, and now it's not the same. And it won't ever be the same. When I first started reading, I don't know, there were parts that were very relatable. The world that you've created, it does really capture something like of a before time. So the novel is about uh, the protagonist, Seon, who is striving for a better life. And one way in which he 
materializes or like realizes his ambition is through this white house on top of a hill in Clifton in Bristol, um, a more affluent area. And that house figures as something to achieve and something to strive towards. And that, I guess, also pushes between the dichotomy of how wealth and opportunity is just not afforded in the same way. There's one thread throughout the novel which thinks about escape. How does that kind of weigh up in your mind in terms of uh, escape or just leaving as like a less dramatic term, as something that is a way of living for oneself? I think Cuba's the, the protagonist's cousin and one of the people he loves and that influences thoughts and actions. Cuba, his um his opinion is some people can make it out and some people can't. And the people who can make it out are very few. And I think I, I, I share that opinion with him. Simply just because that's what I've seen. You know what I'm saying? Like when, when, yeah. once you're involved in a certain way of living. And not even once you're involved in a certain way of living, but even before before that, like the life that you will have lived prior to living to like being involved in any form of criminality kind of sets you up in a certain direction and then to be able to make the actionable change to leave that is an incredibly difficult thing to do so so i can completely agree but i think that's very much the intention for a lot of people and this isn't just just not just about criminality but any anyone in any circumstance where they feel like they're trapped, where they feel like the walls are closing in, escape or betterment is always the dream. Or for anyone in any context, betterment is always the, the aspiration. So I, and I think that's going back to what we were talking about before, that's what the, a mass audience can relate to, the idea of a, of a better life or the desire for a better life. I also just want to touch on um, religion in the novel and I guess say on one of the kind of forms of escape or change in the novel is thinking about religion and his own individual journey and also in relation to the community. Um, I just want to know how like religion played a role in your life growing up, whether it was something you came to by yourself or in a way that kind of properly reflecting on it or if it was something that's always been around you therefore absorbed in that way. No, I didn't come to it myself. So I was raised in the church. Mm. It was every Sunday I was, I was in church. Um, I started to have more agency, like mid-teens, where, where I stopped going to one church where all the leadership was white, and I started going to the next church. But it was, all the leadership was white, but they were like, it was a strange mix because it was in the middle of the East, it was in the middle of the end. All the leadership was white. There was like an old white congregation, but then there was like an older Caribbean con- congregation as well. Then there was like, like Romanians, and there was Iraqis, but it was a strange, it was a strange mix because it was kind of separate as well. But anyway, yeah, I went there and um, and I didn't like it, but I made a few good friends. And all of us were kind of like in the church, but not really in the church, in our heart and head. But then I started to practice properly and I went to our next church with black leadership, both were Baptist churches. And I, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed my time there. A couple of my other brothers went there. One of my brothers went there. And then me and my other brother started going there as well. But then I left Christianity for like a plethora of reasons when I was about 16, 17. Then for years, I was, I was, but I continued to study Christianity. Do you know what I'm saying? I continued to read the Bible. Then I started to read the Quran. I started to read around the Quran as well. And then I, I reverted. Um, so this is my second Ramadan. I reverted to Islam last year. And that's when I guess I became more conscious. I've always had a relationship with God. I've always loved God. I've always understood God to be the creator. I've always understood God to be love. And everything I've ever written has a lot to do with God. And I think everything I ever write going forward in some capacity will be an exploration of God 
and the religions that try and access and understand God, or the modern religions that try and access and understand God, or even the ancient, because it's like, I said, I said the, mentioned the book, 101 Myths of the Bible, which I haven't read yet, but I understand at least a little what it's about. And even ancient, because it's just one religion, obviously, goes on to the next and bleeds into the next, whether there's an understanding or an appreciation of that or not. It's kind of like a continuation. And there's, always, there's so many similarities in the way that we as humans worship God or choose to worship God. And that's something that's probably interesting. The religious journey in the book, Sam's religious journey, is not exactly the same as mine, but there are similarities, even if it's just as simple as going from a Christian background into Islam. I guess religion and uh, spirituality plays a, like a large role in the novel as well when thinking about mm. morality and like redemption and change and things like that. And I guess the characters are more inclined to seek guidance in their uh, own religious codes or like their own moral codes versus kind of a legal system or a system which is involving the police, which I think is interesting and also makes a lot of sense when in relation to their own lives but why did you or not why but how did you find your way weaving in some of your thinking and some of your reading as well into this fictional world i think that's what um my opinions are what the novel begins as okay so i'll literally write down like four or five statements that i believe and that they obviously usually pertain to whatever i've been reading at the moment and then they become the themes and then my themes become the characters my characters become the plot so the religious journey of god was in it from the jump and i knew it was going to be an expert an exploration of morality in relation to the abrahamic faiths or christianity and islam not not so much judaism i knew it was going to be an exploration of morality in relation to those and then not really having the police involved from the jump because that's what matters to me do you know what i'm saying and that's what matters to to a lot of people it's rather like a lot of people don't really care about punishment on this earth it's more punishment or punishment in the net yeah definitely definitely i kind of see that and it kind of makes sense in terms of the structuring of like starting with opinions and beliefs that you want to think about threading into the novel and then the characters are born of that that's really cool just to to mention that the rights of the novel have been snapped up before the novel's release for tv development and I was just wondering what it was like finding that out and how do you feel about the novel existing again in a different art form or your story being reaching a wider audience? How's that been? Sounds mad, but I expected it of myself. That's why I wanted to be. So that's why I expected myself to be. That's why I kind of worked myself towards. So when I heard the news, again, I wasn't like celebratory. I was more like, yeah, let's start working on it now. Do you know what I'm saying? I was excited to start process and obviously I'm involved in the adaptation I'm writing the script so there'll never be like a sequel or a prequel of the book I knew that as well before I started writing it's just going to be a standalone book it's exciting to approach it in a different medium because they require a novel and a tv show even a tv show compared to a film require completely different things and the constraints are different and the the expectations are different so learning that learning them, learning the craft, and then navigating the craft, and then trying to put my own stamp on it. Uh, that's, uh, I, I'm loving it. And when I'm writing the script, and then obviously my influences, I'm able to like study my influences more in more depth, and then put my own twist in it, make it my own thing. And I, I, I love that. That's, that's been part of my, some of my favorite part of the, pro, of the process. Yeah, 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 I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm loving that stuff. 
That's really cool. And I guess having such a uh, pivotal role in terms of writing the script for television, I guess you can think about it in your own way and kind of reconsider yeah, um, stuff for yourself. And I guess it will stay as true as you'd like it to be to, I don't know, I guess the ideas will still be the same and the... Yeah, um, but I think that's what, that's why it's, that's why it's interesting because I'm not trying to make it like a faithful adaptation mm. because I don't think faithful adaptations, faithful adaptations are really successful. And because I understand the themes or the intention behind the themes best, I can then translate them. And once I understand the genre, once I, as in, once I understand the format of television, which obviously I don't entirely, I'm, I'm new to it, but that's why I have posts around Manda production company. But I can I'm learn it on the job, but I've got the knowledge of the intention behind the themes. And then, and then with dedication to craft, and I can, we can create something beautiful. Nice. But, which is which is the intention. So, yeah. You've already said that you are like competitive and ambitious, and I guess you're at the start of your career now. And I kind of wanted to ask what were your like own relation to, to successes and like ambition and like what it looks like to you. How do you grapple with like the ambitious side of yourself moving forward? Not not celebrating yourself has pros and cons. Do you know what I'm saying? I think cons because it's not you don't really allow time for reflection and appreciation. Like you kind of like moving too quick. You know what I'm saying? And I think a lot of people have that. And it's, this isn't just within art, this is within wherever. If someone gets a new job, a new nine to five, or da da da, there's types of people who just keep going in it. But one of the pros of it is I'm constantly moving. Do you know what I'm saying? So I finished this book and then I, I wrote a first draft of my next book. And then I started writing a TV show and I started planning the third book. And then, you see what I'm saying? So if I, I have the, the, the dream, I have the dream of being in the conversation as the best novelist ever. That's what I want. That's a dream. In order to make it an ambition, I have to work towards that constantly. And it's a daily thing that like you can't, yeah. artists talk like in a very flowery way. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they'll say, oh, when inspiration hits you and you have to take it as it comes, like you hear some artists say these type of things across the medium, it's not just writers. But I don't agree with that at all. I think yeah, you have to treat it like more than nine to five because people will work like, 80 hours, 70 hours in jobs they can't stand. Do you know what I'm saying? But just to make ends meet. And we have the privilege of working a job that we enjoy and that we love. And rather than even a job, it's a craft. So I think our dedication, our dedication should go beyond theirs, which is very difficult to do. Obviously, creativity, sometimes you are limited by mood. Even just, obviously, Ramadan's just ended. Thinking creatively on an empty stomach is a difficult thing to do. But there's other things that you can do. You can read or you can uh, research or you can, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's, there's everything that lends itself towards yeah. your craft and the study of your craft. In terms of what I want, that's, that's what I want, do you know what I'm saying? Like, what motivates me and what is my legacy when I die is what motivates me. Okay. And the body of work I leave behind is what motivates me. And it's quite like an internal thing. And it's internal because I have these touchstones and because I'm competitive. So if I have Maya Angelou, James Baldwin, if I have Gabriel Garcia Marquez as what I'm trying to achieve, then I'm quite able to be objective with myself. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I can read a knowledge of an ends. I can have it in my right hand. In my left hand, I'll have Love in the Time of Cholera. And I'll read them. And I'll know that Love in the Time of Cholera is a better book. I can break it down and say this, this, this book is better than my book. But it's not, it's not something that... I was, I, I was speaking in London the other day and a guy in the audience asked I thought it's a question I thought about before and I said it was a good question which is kind of like complimenting myself <laughs> but he, he asked if 
if there's anyone's work who that who who well I can't remember the the words he used, but to paraphrase, do is there anyone whose work I read and then feel and think it's so good that I'm then uninspired? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like I I look at it and think this is so good, I can never achieve this. There's no point in me writing. And I, I was saying like when I was writing song lyrics as a kid and I heard Kendrick Lamar sing about me, I said that I'm dying at first. I said I can't achieve this. You know what I'm saying? That's in terms of rap, that's like the pinnacle. And obviously there's other songs, there's other examples, there's other freestyles like Black Force Freestyle or anywhere, so many people that I just I look at and just I can't achieve this. You know what I'm saying? Even like even 2016, the 2016 when Smino dropped Black Swan, mm. and I and I heard that tape and I said, yeah, I can't achieve this. That they've been raised in around so much music, and so I was raised around a lot of music, but just whatever it is, whether it's talent or genius or anything, I just didn't absorb it in the way that they've obviously absorbed it, and then are able to to reproduce it and create their own. And I and I so I could relate to that question. Because I'd experienced that feeling in music, even going back to that Mars Davis, whatever. There's no way you can achieve what, in my mind, that I could achieve. So, what they've achieved. But then with the writing, I've never felt that. And it's kind of, especially writing early on. Like obviously, it's my first novel. I wrote three before, but I'm in a very, I'm aware that I'm in a very early stage in my career. And you have to have this arrogance, because it is arrogance, because it's not founded yet, that you can achieve what they've achieved that you can create a body of work or, or even if it's just one just the quality of a piece of work as you know several works to the same standard as them it has to it's a slight arrogance because you haven't done it yet and it's actually no there's no corporal proof it's just a confidence or arrogance or maybe even a delusion do you know what i'm saying or even a self-belief if you're speaking positively but yeah so I, I I don't experience that with writing. I, I read their work and I think that's amazing. This is what I want to do, and then I get inspired by the by the gulf between us, rather than like deep by the gulf. You know, our artists can be very protective about their work, and they don't want to show anyone, and they don't want to share it, and they're afraid, and they attach their insecurities and anxieties to the work. And a lot of artists are perfectionists, but getting over that. In, in however way however you can is very important because having an appreciation for uh, examples with an olive grove and end i wrote the first draft in 2019 we finished editing in 2020 that's two years ago so an olive grove and ends although it's my debut novel in 2022 it's as good as i was in 2020 yeah you know what i'm saying since then and thought about things this is, yeah this is what i'm saying so i've yeah. progressed i'm better than olive grove and end if i was approaching the book now I would approach the book in a different way than to how I wrote it then. And even the book I'm writing now, like my second book I'm writing now, I finished the first draft in December. We'll finish editing this year. That mm. book will come out in 2024. The book that comes out will constantly be behind me. But you have to come to terms with that and accept that is an example or evidence of how good you were at that point in time and then just move on. I guess it's hard when it's kind of then also shared to the world as well and you have to have to like not be too conscious of that or self-conscious of that even. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like this links quite nicely to the last few questions. We have like five fairly quick fire questions we ask everyone. Firstly, uh, what's a book that you have to have like in your collection? Maybe something you like return to often or something you can't stop thinking about or something that's just quite central to your... I've gathered together in my name or singing Swing in a Merry Like Christmas by Miles. 
Nice. The next one is a song or an album that defines the soundtrack of your life today. Rudy by D'Angelo. Okay, cool. Um, a film or a TV show that you can watch or have watched repeatedly? Films, Love Jones, Minus to Society. Mm. And then TV show would be A Different World. The first stage production you saw and what it meant to you, um, like play, dance, concert, anything? First stage production was probably my brother used to act. He was part of Old Vic in the National Theatre. And my brother who did the audio book, actually. Oh, cool. I can't remember what it was, but there's a, there's a big age difference between us, isn't it? But I went to go see one of his mm. productions at the Old Vic. But I don't even know if that was the first, because I remember I seen The Lion King when I was a youth as well. That yeah, might have been the first. That kind of made a, some impact, I guess, yeah. Um, and finally, yeah. what has made you sad, mad and glad this week? Sad, mad and glad. I don't only get sad, so none of that. Cool. I only get mad, so none of that. Glad, obviously, the book drop. Lots to be glad about. Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? And um, actually, no, sad. I like, I like Ramadan, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Sad, maybe, is probably too strong of a word, but I like Ramadan. But then glad again, Eid's here, obviously, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you so much for joining us on TV Talk, Moses. Um, I wish you all the best. Um, and, like, I really recommend the novel to anyone listening. And An Oliver Grove and Ends is available kind of anywhere. You can buy books, so seek it out. <laughs> um, it is really great. But thank you so much. Thank you.